This episode of the Global Franchise Podcast is brought to you by Fit20, a revolutionary 20-minute fitness concept disrupting the industry. For more information about how you can become a part of this exciting network, head over to fit20.com. Welcome to the Global Franchise Podcast, bringing you expert insight from the franchise industry's most experienced figures. I'm Kieran McLoon, editor for Global Franchise Magazine. You know, the, the franchise model, there's over 4,000 franchisors in the U.S., but only a couple hundred that have achieved any scale with the model. Most of the franchise brands are under 200 locations in the U.S., um, and so there's a lot of use of the, the model, but not as often as I'd like to see. We're not extracting the value that it, it represents. It's, it's being used in a very kind of simple way, but the franchise model is an, an incredibly complex and powerful model that, again, is, I think, used superficially many times and, and with less than optimal <laughs> results. Our guest today is a franchising professional that has experienced practically every aspect of what this industry represents. He's a trusted advisor to international brands such as IKEA and Remax, has founded a leading franchise consultancy service, and is also an adjunct professor at Georgetown University and the University of Maryland. Dr. Ben Litalian knows franchising in and out, making him the ideal person to advise emerging and established brands on their strategic planning, organizational development, and franchise system growth. Stay tuned, because by the end of our conversation, you'll be fully equipped to launch your franchising potential to the next level. I started uh, in franchising in the late 80s by taking over a, a, a failed franchise company. I, I really liked the concept, the business model, didn't know anything about franchising, um, but uh, had the opportunity to uh, try and do a turnaround, figure out, you know, what went wrong and and try and get the business moving forward again and uh, it was in the automotive paint touch-up space and i'm a bit of a car buff if you will uh some restored you know u.s muscle cars and things like that and so i really liked the business model i met with the franchisees figure out what the problem was and, and why things weren't working and surprisingly to me it was really what I call a bunch of dripping faucets. It was nothing earth shattering. It was just the franchisor had not lived up to the uh, commitments or expectations of the franchisees. And so worked through those issues and got the company, you know, back on its feet and the franchisees back in the fold. And we started growing rapidly. And um, a few years later, uh, had the opportunity to sell the company and began to realize the value that franchise companies create, not just, you know, for the franchisees or the franchisor, but the value of the franchise company overall. So we sold that company and, and really liked the franchise model. I really liked interacting with franchisees, people who had made a commitment to a brand and put their heart and soul and their, some cases, their, their, you know, financial commitment, life savings, if you will. And, and, and really became impassioned um, about it. And so I, I looked for another opportunity and it ended up being in the food service sector. It was a mall food court 
concept uh, called Frulati Cafe. And I partnered with the founder who had six locations in Dallas. And three years later, we had 130 locations in malls around the country and rocking and rolling and uh, life was good. But again, another opportunity came up uh, for the, the company to be acquired by another franchisor and sold. And so I did this process four times in a row, just different concepts, franchising them, building them to a certain size. It, the funny thing is I never planned to quit doing any of them. I, I really thought every one of them, that's what I'd be doing for the rest of my life, building this big brand and growing it. Um, but that wasn't my my uh, path. I, I kept finding or, or buyers kept finding <laughs> the concepts. And ultimately, after the fourth one, I got a call from somebody I knew at uh, Exxon. Exxon Mobile had merged and they were looking for someone to head up their U.S. franchising and specifically to figure out how to take the mobile on the run franchise concept into the Exxon distributor network. So I created a new model called regional developer, uh, which is a combination of uh, area developer and area representative and uh, was able to get 45 Exxon distributors to join that system and do a thousand convenience stores in four and a half years. So this is an incredible ride, uh, amazing, you know, success. Mm. We were a convenience store of the year, uh, all kinds of uh, awards, whatnot. Um, but I'm really not a, a corporate guy. I'm not a company guy. I, I'm an entrepreneur. And after building that, the thought of maintaining it was not really exciting. And so it was that point I decided uh, what I really wanted to do was uh, be a consultant. And so I started uh, Franchise Well in 2009 with uh, a fo focus on uh, systems thinking, a disciplined approach, and uh, franchising for the betterment of society. So focusing on concepts that would make a difference in the world. And, um, you know, a boutique consulting practice that really kind of took off at the same time i thought i should uh, you know hedge my bets uh and decided to get my doctorate uh figured you know hey if the consulting doesn't work out i can always teach right so started uh, at the university of maryland on my doctorate um and uh ended up uh in 2012 getting my uh, doctorate uh, conferred my dissertation was on the theory of social franchising so i spent my time in my doctoral program uh, researching this idea of nonprofits engaging the franchise model in support of their mission. And, uh, you know, I think I've right. become uh, somewhat of a, a global expert in that particular field with some amazing success with uh, Jibu, a concept out of West, West Africa that is retail water store franchises that was started very modestly. Uh, about seven years ago. Today, 2,800 franchisees in eight countries in Africa and sometimes uh, acclaimed as the most successful social franchise on the planet today. So three of our countries are you know, fully self-sustainable now. Uh, and that's really the model. And that's where I think franchising in the nonprofit sector about building sustainability. So you're not having to continually look for funding for some of these really worthwhile projects. So Anyway, got the doctorate and started consulting with a variety of companies. And I also created the Franchise Management Certificate Program for Georgetown University, which, again, about 2011, 
launched that and have had, you know, over a thousand attendees from all over the world. Uh, it's, it's two three-day sessions in Washington, D.C., and two 10-day online sessions. So uh, it's, it's a hybrid program that is really kind of unique because it's a, uh, a qualified certificate program at Georgetown, which means when you enroll in it, you become an alumni of Georgetown University. You're actually, you know, will receive a, a certificate, you know, just like a diploma from Georgetown and, and be uh, considered an alumni after completing that course. So uh, I've had the, the honor of having people from about 30 different countries uh, come through that program from, again, all over the world. So teaching the Georgetown program, consulting with companies as large as IKEA, Remax, UPS Store, Snap-on tools, but a lot of work with entrepreneurs who want to franchise their uh, their concept to help them uh, really use the franchise model for optimal results. As as you may know, you know the the franchise model. There's over four thousand franchisors in the U.S., but only a couple hundred hmm. that have achieved any scale with the model. Most of the franchise brands are under 200 locations in the U.S. Um, and so there's a lot of use of the, the model, but not as often as I'd like to see. We're not extracting the value that it, it represents. It's, it's being used in a very kind of simple way, but the franchise model is an, an incredibly complex and powerful model that again is i think used superficially many times and and with uh less than optimal results right okay and i want to i want to just dive down into one of the things you mentioned there ben um how franchise well your consultancy at the minute you know uh one of the key pillars of that is that franchising can be done well if it's for the betterment of society um and i wondered uh, if you could explain a little more about what you mean by that in the sense of is that specifically sustainable brands healthy brands like fitness and things like that or are there other positive aspects that you think come under that umbrella yeah so I thought, you know, if I'm going to have my own consulting practice, I could kind of set my own path and and my own standards, right? My own values and and you know, there's lots of opportunities out there. There's lots of concepts that that want and and need to be franchised. I just made a decision going into it that I wanted to spend my time on things that I felt were worthy uh of uh being franchised, meaning that from my perspective that they had a, a positive influence on society. Um, and that could be in the underlying concept. It could be on how it transforms the franchisees' lives uh, into something better, how it takes them from where they are to somewhere they, they want to be. It's it's mostly really in who it is that that has the concept, who I'm working with is very, very important to me. Yeah, I'll give you an example recently. You know, a, a couple of inv investors reached out to me and said, hey, you know, we don't know anything about franchising or anything about coffee, but we came up with this double drive through idea and we've labeled it and we've built a prototype. And can you help us franchise it? And to me, there's no story there. There's no there's no it's just, yeah. you know, some people with some money that, that came up with, you know, put an idea together and they want to build some of these and sell it and, you know, and and, and benefit from the success of the franchise journey and and that you know and i'm sure they'll find lots of people that'll help them and you know 
and you know, good luck. God bless them. Just not, you know, you know what I'm into. Like, and it, it, on the other side of the coin, met a really awesome couple out in LA that you know have one location, uh, and it's a chicken concept, Daddy's Chicken Shack. And I, I mean, it just the way it came about, the story that built it. It just is so rich. I mean, she's a classically trained chef with a awesome catering business to the stars that literally just went defunct because of COVID. Nobody's having parties. Nobody's doing catering. And 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 yet for one of her catering, she created this really awesome chicken sandwich. I mean, you know, as a trained chef would do, you know, just, I'm not just going to make a chicken sandwich. I'm going to make the best chicken sandwich you've ever had. And so COVID hits and our husband's like, you know, everybody loves these. Let's, let's do that. Let's, so they opened up in 750 square feet, this daddy's chicken shack. And it's just phenomenal. I mean, Jay Leno was there a couple of weeks ago. Terry Crews stops in all the time. It's become a, a, a really eclectic kind of cool place because it's kind of an down an alley almost in Pasadena. And yet it's become a, you know, like you mentioned it to people and they know it, it's there. And, and the volumes they've done out of there are phenomenal. So, yeah, I mean, we're rolling that out, but I love the story behind it, right? It, it's just, it's rich. It's the American story. I mean, and, and so that's what I mean by, you know, franchise well, right? And and the model that I'm architecting for them, you know, is is unique to them. It's not following the the subway model or the the burger king model it you know it's it's a model architected for them to achieve their goals which you know is really you know building daddies working with existing multi-unit operators who want to plug a awesome chicken shop concept into their portfolio and that's just an example i mean every person who goes into the franchise sector you know should be thinking about how to use the franchise model to achieve their goals. Because if your goal hmm. is to be a household name, it's going to be a totally different franchise model than if you want to have a hundred and and you know and be a regional player. It's a totally different model. Do you want owner operators or do you want investors? Do you you know see the people working in these or can it create enough margin to where an investor can own it? and hire people to operate it. Completely different structures and and use of the franchise model. Yeah. And um, you mentioned up top that uh you know you think only maybe a few hundred different kinds of franchises in the US are really using the model um in a in a way that it should be used and this is perhaps quite a a difficult uh, not difficult but a uh, an abstract question but what are some of the ways you think that franchising should be used that perhaps it's not now were there any kind of main things you could say in more general terms or do you think that it's it's more you just have to look at a specific business and work out what works best for them in a more bespoke kind of angle i could tell you that the the, the primary reason that most concepts don't achieve scale is they're not good at change management right okay franchising is a transformation model and it is constantly going through change. When you have one franchisee, your model is going to be different than when you have 10 franchisees. Think about communication strategy, for example. And by the way, most franchisors I talk to do not have a deliberate communication strategy. 
you know, their strategy is basically reactive or, you know, winging it. I mean, it's just like, yeah, if they call, we'll answer, uh, you know, we'll go visit them once a year. <laughs> what else should we do? And that's just crazy because a franchise network is a highly diverse environment. And I researched how to communicate in highly diverse environments. And most franchisors are just way off target. They, matter of fact, the, the, the communication strategy they had when they started, they're still trying to use it, you know, as they're, you know, larger now. And it just is untenable. Mm. So when you have one franchisee or 10 franchisees or 100 franchisees, your model has to evolve as you move down that continuum. And, you know, we as, you know, humans are adverse to change, right? It's in our DNA. We don't want change. We want homeostasis. We want things to, to you know, stay in our comfort zone. But when you decide to go down the franchise path, you're accepting change management as the norm because every day you've got to be monitoring. Am I extracting the most value out of my supply chain? Am I getting the best pricing? Because now I can leverage my scale more. Right. And, and that drives down the cost for everybody that participates. Am I communicating effectively? When you have a hundred franchisees, they're all on a different continuum, right? One just signed today, one signed last year, you know, another one signed two years ago, some signed, right? So if you plot them, which I do for clients, right? Take all your franchisees and plot them on a chart of, you know, one year or less, you know, to, one to three years to three to five, right? Put them on a chart of when they join the brand. How can you send out an email and expect all those people to respond to it the same way? Yeah. Think about if you're going to change your point of sale system, right? I mean, the person who just opened yesterday is like, what do you mean change my point of sale system? I just opened yesterday. You told me to put this in. <laughs> the person who's growing rapidly, yeah. right? They're in their second, third year and they're just growing, right? I don't have time to put in a point of sale system. What are you talking about? You know, the, the franchisee that's five years in, mature, man, they're they're milking the cow, right? They're up here. They're making lots of money. They're like, it's not broken. Why are you trying to fix it? Leave me alone. No, I don't want to change my point of sale system. So the point being is that in a franchise system, nobody's happy when you want to change the point of sale system. But the point is you have to change it, right? Because as a good leader, you've mm. got to stay, you know, in front of technology, you've got to be relevant to customers. So you've got to make those changes. But if your whole system's built on an adverse reaction to change, your communications can be totally dysfunctional. Franchisees need to come into the, the whole equation with a franchise with the expectation that it's going to change so that they're not surprised when you communicate to them that you've done your research and we've got to make this change. Yeah. So it's not necessarily about then um, creating a culture in which each franchisee almost gets a, you know, personal bespoke treatment. It's the, as you say, readying them from the get go so that they're prepared for change. And it's obviously, you know, a franchisor can't roll out a thousand different methodologies for each of their individual units. Um, that's not at all what you're saying, but it's more that, you know, it needs to be, they're prepared for that level of, uh, of updating. Yes, because A, the, the franchisor cannot predict the future, right? I mean, who predicted COVID, yeah. you know, and without a good communication system in your franchise, you know, many franchisors struggled through COVID because they, their system wasn't ready, you know, for them to communicate effectively to them about how to deal with it. Um, and, and that, that caused a lot of dysfunction and, and a lot of heartache, I'm sure. But, but it's, it's also the franchisor has to navigate these changes and the franchisees, if they're, 
pushing back, if they're not working collectively, uh, collaboratively with the franchisor, uh, because it's top-down management or because it's, you know, we send you an email and expect you to follow it as opposed to, you know, being an engaged environment and speaking to franchisees mm -hmm. at the stage they're in, in a way that they can, you know, understand and, and respond effectively. Um, the, the goal of the franchise model is reduced monitoring cost. It means that as you grow, you should have less cost to support the system. But that only works when the franchisees are lockstep and aligned with you and with your goals and where what you're doing. A lot of franchise systems, you know, they run into, you know, issues as they scale because their support costs are way too high because franchisees need their hand held way too long in the system. I give you an example. If you have a franchise where hiring, training, and managing people is a critical component of your success, why would you sell your franchise to a gym teacher who has never hired, trained, or managed a person in his life? Hmm. Who do you think he's going to rely on to help him do that effectively? Of course, the franchisor. Well, that's not the franchisor's job. And yet, they're stuck now having to try to help this franchisee because they they didn't qualify. If you if you need franchisees to hire, train and manage people to be successful with your business model, don't sell franchises to people who have never hired, trained or managed people because you'll end up with high monitoring costs. Yeah, but there is, I suppose, there is a middle ground in which, you know, uh, because a lot of brands don't require explicit experience of the kind of, you know, the thing that they're running for franchisees. You're, you know, um, I, I'm assuming that you're not saying that all brands need to say, like, you have a, a fitness brand, you don't necessarily have to hire fitness professionals, it is more those kind of general B2B sort of skills. Yeah, no, I mean, fitness is a great example. I mean, you know, many people who buy fitness franchises have no fitness background whatsoever. But, you know, if they have good business skills, you know, they know how to hire people, and they know how to train people, they know how to build a team, right? Those are highly valued traits for most franchise systems. Um, as you probably know, I mean, the joint employer issue, you know, the, the independence of the franchisee limits the amount of involvement franchisors should have in the HR aspects of the franchisee's business. It's their business. These are their employees. And so we shouldn't be training franchisees on how to operate the business as much as training them on how to train their people, how to operate the business. Franchise training is train the trainer at its core. The, the better skills somebody comes to, to the franchise model with, you know, with the business background or an HR background or, you know, whatever those those background skills are, you know, the more effective they're going to be and the less less burden there's going to be on the franchise or to make up those deficits. Yeah. And, um, and kind of preparing franchisees for, you know, for change and all the things we've been talking about, of course, uh, only comes if you have a, a really great um, executive leadership team on the franchise or side of things. And I know that one of your core strengths with Franchise Well is um, organizational development. And I was wondering if there were maybe some uh, important lessons, evergreen tips that franchisors should stick to when they're building their executive leadership teams, you know, before they start um, recruiting a whole bunch of franchisees. Again, back to the, you know, the theme of no one one size fits all in franchising, right? And, and this change management. So 
when you start out with your franchise model, right, you've got an underlying concept that you're franchising. Presumably, you've got some proof of concept with units built or operating. But as you go into franchising, one of the key things is understanding the business you are in, right? You know, Daddy's Chicken Shack, I mean, they're in the fast casual business. But when they decide to go into franchising, now they're in the franchise business. And so you can't look at all the principles that guide you in the fast casual business and then just apply them in the franchise business. For example, you're used to telling people what to do and they do it. If they don't, you know, you fire them, right? That's not how the franchise relationship works. You don't fire franchisees, right? It's collaborative. <laughs> and so that's why, you, you know, you've got to change your mindset. It's called metanoia. It's a really cool word, but it means shift of mind. I thought this way and now I think this way. And so oftentimes when I'm working with an entrepreneur, I'm spending a fair bit of time beginning to change the way they think, shift their thinking. I'm in the franchise business now. What are the rules of engagement in the franchise business? So as you asked, when, when they start, who should I hire? You know, you have to hire generalists because you need one person to handle multiple things early stage when you start franchising. But here again is where a lot of systems run into problems. Those early stage people you hire you're not paying them maybe top dollar. Maybe it's your brother-in-law. Maybe it's your best friend from college. Maybe it's somebody you worked with before, but you're engaging them in your, your vision. And, and, and so they join, right? And they have whatever requisite skills that they have, but it's likely those skills will not be what's needed when you hit a hundred franchisees or 150 franchisees hmm. or 200. There's a, a, an inflection point where you really need professional management in franchising, right? Not just your wife doing handling the franchise sales, but an actual franchise development professional, not just somebody handling operations who, you, you know, that you, you talked into joining the team early stage, but somebody who's managed, right? A larger, because once you get to that hundred, how are you going to get to that 200? If you put a cap on the skills that you have within the team, there's also what I call the founder syndrome, which is founders are great at ideation, at creation, but oftentimes they're not really good at managing, putting their head down and pushing forward. They like to keep tweaking the model, keep changing, keep creating, keep innovating. And I think the genius of Fred DeLuca, the founder of Subway, was that he, when he saw a double digit growth, he got out of the way. He, he stepped back and let the team run it. Yeah. And, and when he saw the, the sales start to flatten out, he would insert himself back in there and start looking for how to move us forward, how to come out with the, the $5 foot long, how to come out with, you know, you know, the, another campaign or another product or whatever to re-energize it. So founders are great at getting things going, but, but then they need to phase in people with really good skill sets. And that's hard because how do you tell your best friend that, you know, man, I brought you in and you've been doing the marketing, but man, we got to take this to another level. Now you're going to be the director of marketing, but I got to bring in a VP of marketing, you know, and, and that can be a tough situation or your wife who's doing the accounting you, you know, and, and now we need to hire, you know, like a book, you know, a real accountant to come in and, and run the financial and, and do the gap analysis and blah, blah, blah. So again, it all goes back to that same theme. 
franchising, once you make that decision, you're in the change management business. And, and I just many people, that's not a place that they've been or that they're comfortable. And it creates a lot of challenges. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense that, you know, there aren't really hard and fast rules you can necessarily provide because, as you say, they could change every day, week, month, year, especially when something like COVID suddenly pops up, you know, our brand's ready for that. We've learned <laughs> a lot of them know. So um, I think that's really useful advice, Ben. Uh, the 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 last question I've got for you is just a little more about your um, your work at the University of Maryland and Georgetown as an adjunct professor. Um, and it's quite a unique perspective, I suppose, because not many people in the franchise industry would necessarily get FaceTime or interaction with, um, for argument's sake, the next generation of business leaders. Yeah. Um, and I was wondering if there were any sort of, any things that stood out to you as exciting or interesting or unique about that next generation? What do you think franchising is going to look like in five, 10 years from now? You know, one of my concerns i would say about you know franchising relative to the future state is that yeah i by and large i haven't seen it as uh, attractive to millennials you know we've got a generation who uh, you know just like other generations before them grew up in a, a time and have different thoughts and different you know values and and i think many look at franchising as indentured servitude. You know, I it's kind of like a job. I got to wear your uniform. I've got to follow your rules. I've got to fly your colors. And and that's not as appealing, I think, to this generation um, to be franchisees. We should be in a boom time with franchising with millennials who have access to more capital than any generation in the history of the world. You know, my kids, you know, when they decided they wanted to do something, you know, they I helped them, but, you know, they found a franchise and we got it and they open it and they operate it. But, you know, their idea of what was attractive was different than, okay, what's the bottom line? You know, yes, there needed to be a bottom line, a return on investment, but I want to find something that every day I get excited about getting up and, and, and being engaged in this. Mm. And they did, man. They, but they looked at a lot of concepts and I said, man, this is awesome. You should check this out. And they're like, no, that just that doesn't do it for me, right? Franchising shouldn't be about just job replacement. It should be about quality of life, right? Whether you're an investor or an owner operator, does it energize you? Does it get you up in the morning? Do you look forward to engaging with it? And to me, that's the success of the model is having the ability to find something that has a playbook, that has support. Um, you know, it's got bumper guards, if you will, keeps you, keeps you in a, you know, a safe place. You know, you can't go too far off the rails, hopefully, but yet you still have the complete independence to build an A team and an awesome culture to delight customers every time to build your own equity in a business that you own, you know, under a brand where values being created outside of your own efforts by the other franchisees and the franchisor. It's, it's a phenomenal model, but I am you know, concerned that we're not putting it in the best light to attract some of the brightest you know, millennials to franchising. Um, I do think a lot of what is meant to be socialized in franchising is being institutionalized. Right. And what I mean by that is the relationship between the franchisor and the franchisees is really going through a bit of a challenge right now. I mean, 
you have a lot of private equity or you know a lot of Wall Street investment coming into the franchise space. And of course, you know, they're going to look at the bottom line and they're going to focus on a good return on the investment, but not understanding the value of the relationship with the franchisees has caused many of them to have less than optimal results. <laughs> um, and, and I think because they're institutionalizing uh, the model, it's, it's really about a social connection with the franchisees. We're in this together. Let's go down this path together. And that's what I was talking about before, about lowered monitoring costs, reduced monitoring costs. To get that, you have to have the behavior you want from the franchisees without being there to get it. Yeah. Right? If I'm looking over your shoulder, that costs money. But if you're doing what I need you to do with in the best interest of the brand without me having to be there, everybody wins. And you know, quite frankly, the franchisee shouldn't want the franchisor there looking over their shoulder. This is their business. You know, they, they should be be able to operate successfully without you know, us lording over them, if you will, from a franchisor perspective. But that only happens when you have a relationship built on respect and trust and, and very deliberate communication. Yeah, I suppose that kind of also defeats the purpose of franchising slightly if the franchisor is that involved, because in which case they may as well just run it as a corporate owned unit, surely. It's like if, you know, you have to trust people to run the business for you almost. Yes. Well, and, and, you know, franchising is a continuum, right? There's, hmm. you know, one end of the spectrum, you've got the Chick-fil-A or the 7-Eleven or, you know, where they own the land, they own the building and, and your franchisee, you know, is a, a general manager. I mean, they're, they basically, their franchise is to be the manager of this, you know, business, um, which is great. At the other end of the spectrum, you know, you've got very, uh, you know, where the, the franchisee owns the land, owns the building, runs the business and develops a territory, you know? And so th there's a wide spectrum there to play with, you know, on franchising. And, and so, you know, going back to the modeling, I mean, there's the single unit owner operator, single unit investor, multi-unit owner operator, multi-unit investor, area developer, area representative, regional developer. I mean, there's a lot to work with in the franchise model toolbox. And I, I, I think of it like a, a series of levers. And you've got to move these levers to get them in the right combination in order to give you that outcome that optimizes using the franchise model. And so when I, you know, am invited in to help a franchise or figure out how to improve their business, you know, increase their sales or, or, you know, you know, fix their communication what i'm looking at those levers and where they've put them to figure out what adjustments are needed to optimize the model so it's a very complex model that is taking taken way too lightly by by many people who use it yeah well i think that's a that's a very insightful note to end on ben so thank you very much for for your time it's been really really great speaking with you and uh yeah hope to speak again soon oh, it's been my pleasure i appreciate it Ben was very candid about the problems that he sees in the franchise industry nowadays, but thankfully provided an expert guidebook on how brands can elevate themselves to the level of being committed to the betterment of society, which was, as we mentioned, a key tenet of the franchise well approach. This isn't just about being focused on healthy eating or renewable energy, but is instead concerned with the way that franchises go about running their networks. 
It's all about perspective and realizing what kind of business you're truly in. Growth and riches are a great positive, but without sustainability in the right trajectory, they could be temporary. We'd be keen to hear your thoughts on this. What do you think a franchise brand needs to do in order to truly make a difference? Make sure to let us know. If you like the podcast, subscribe and recommend it to your friends and colleagues. Or even better, leave a review or a simple rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your pods. To keep up to date with franchise news and have it put into context by the global franchise experts, subscribe to the magazine, hit us up at globalfranchisemagazine.com and follow us on Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn today.